It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Javits, and thanks for joining us. I think you're really going to enjoy this. We're going to talk a little bit about the news. We're going to talk about the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then we're going to have a conversation with Kevin Roberts. Uh, Kevin is the fairly new. He's been there for a while now, but uh, he's the new leader of the Heritage Foundation. He's just been around for 50 years, one of the most important and largest think tanks in Washington, D.C., and Consequently, very influential with uh, policy as we see it. And for those of you that are nerds and geeks like I am and about policy, uh, Heritage Foundation is, is just vital. It's really important, but it's got a, it's got some fairly new leadership. Again, he's been there for a while now, but, um, I really, I think, uh, this will be a good discussion and I hope you, you're able to enjoy it from somebody who's, who's really going to be an impact player on all of our lives because of the policy that's being advocated and researched there at the Heritage Foundation. So, but first, let's talk a little bit about the news. Um, you know, I try to find things that just aren't the headlines and then just regurgitate them. There's a bigger backstory to a lot of these stories that um, I wanna be able to share on this podcast. And the theme, I guess, for this week, the thing that I'm looking at that is very frustrating is that we never seem to learn the lesson of things that were dramatic and we were all promising we were going to change into the future, particularly the administrative state. You know, keep in mind, you had Barack Obama and Joe Biden leading 2.2 million people for four years. You had the disruption, which I would argue is a good thing, of Donald Trump coming in and trying to disrupt the status quo. But I think what you saw was a frustration from President Trump in the ability to actually move and steer the ship in another direction. And it's not just going to be, um, you know, a couple of years of this and then, oh, we stop doing it. The problem is, as you start to move that ship and become more responsible to start to become more accountable as to to do certain things um it's painful for keep in mind more than 20 percent of our gross domestic product is spent by our federal government it's closer to 25 percent you know uh of our federal government is being of our economy is being spent by the federal government so if you're trying to make them more accountable more efficient more effective all of those types of things it's very difficult and um, you have to just tenaciously never stop. But I guess what bothers me is we always take this money from the taxpayers, from you, from me, from our kids, and they just spend like crazy. I mean, that's why we're at 30 plus trillion dollars in debt. And yet we never learn the lessons of the past. The waste, the fraud, the abuse is so big. You know, one of the things is we look at all these... Um, you know, for instance, the inspector general um, looking at the pandemic spending, uh, the head of the Secret Service looking at 
keep in mind they're in charge of money financial transactions overseas they get they have more of a to their mission at the secret service than than i think most people realize they they think of it as just a protective detail it's it's not that's one thing that they do but the integrity of our currency financial transactions credit card transactions money traveling overseas that also is in the purview of the secret service and and why they need to be fully functional and in, in doing what they're doing but we never seem to learn the lesson I mean, those people, Secret Service and uh, and the, the Inspector General have estimated more than 100, and it may be a few hundred billion dollars, was stolen uh, through the pandemic spending. And so a record amount of money went out the door, but when all that money is stolen and goes overseas and never even sees the light of day in the United States... You would think we would learn that lesson, but we didn't. It, was anybody fired? Was anybody held accountable? No, not a single one. I guarantee you, every single one of those federal workers is going to get a cost of living adjustment, positive for them, moving up, and they're probably going to get um, a pay increase. And in addition to that, last time I looked, and it's been a few years, Last time I looked, 70% of federal workers got a bonus. What in the world are we doing? When you have that kind of waste, fraud, and abuse, and that kind of money, nobody is held accountable, not a single person is fired? That is, I mean, we never learned this. Remember when we went through TARP, the Troubled Assets Relief Program? Well, there was an inspector general there. And what did they tell us? Billions of dollars was wasted out the door. Were there any adjustments, any changes, any uh, lessons learned that were then applied next time we had the crisis, which was the pandemic? No, not a single one. Flint water. I did all kinds of hearings. We had people for more than a year drinking water with lead in it. And kids were affected. Cancer was prevalent. And hundreds of millions of dollars went out the door. Do you think we learned any lessons? Flint Water, just last week, which is probably by the time this broad is aired, is going to be two weeks old. They had to shut down their system because they had another water line break. People have to boil their water in Flint, Michigan. Remember the, uh, who remembers the gyrocopter? Now you may have to stretch and remember this one, but there was a, a formal former or may have been a current postal worker who got in essentially an uh, an ultralight it, it didn't have the it, it was a it was a, what they called a gyrocopter and he took off uh outside of washington dc flew this thing over like the lincoln memorial past the past the washington Monument, and landed right in front of the capitol how does somebody do that well Believe me, because I was the I was the you know helping to lead these investigations. Uh, had I had more military brass, more police in front of me, talking about how they were going to take care of things and and figure out a strategy on how to deal with uh, gyrocopters and deal with ultralights and deal with drones, and then suddenly we have this problem with balloons and other unidentified objects entering our airspace and they still can't figure it out or did they figure it out i don't know but you know we had like 10 years to go figure this out 
And they came back and swore to us, told us, testified that they probably have found a solution, that there was going to be a solution. But did we learn that lesson? I don't know. So whether it's the gyrocopter or the water problems or the spending of money and you know as rapidly as possible, we never learn a lesson. And nobody is fired. That's what just drives me nuts. And that's my view on the news is never learn these lessons. I mean, look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Did anybody learn a lesson through, through that? Was anybody fired for what they did and how they did it? Because Americans lost their lives doing it. And and yet, I where's the accountability? It, it just drives me crazy. It just drives me nuts. All right, time to bring on the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And of course, you don't have to look very far. You, you bring up the name Don Lemon. You know, this story has been played again. If you, if you pay attention to Fox, you, you undoubtedly have heard this story. But it's worth repeating yet again because it is so out of control where Don Lemon is there um, you know talking about Nikki Haley has put her hat in the ring to run for president and his comment is a woman is considered to be in their prime in 20s 30s and maybe 40s that that's he he basically said she's past her prime to which and I really actually like this the the co-host Poppy Harlow remarked prime for what I mean some of the most successful women out there men too they aren't necessarily in their 20s 30s and and 40s he said maybe 40s you know one of the people maybe maybe Don Lemon has to familiarize himself with is Safra Katz she happens to be the CEO of Oracle uh, this little you know tech company that maybe she he should familiarize himself with she's the ceo she's a multi-billionaire for goodness sake and you know what she educated herself she worked hard she worked her way up the ladder she is a self-made billionaire and did amazing things yeah she's like 60 61 years old and one of the most successful women in the country i dare him to say that in front of in front of her that women are in their prime in their 20s and 30s and maybe 40s i mean prime of what don um it, it's just and then he has the gall to buy, d- dive deeper into it and say well google it and you know don't shoot the messenger i, I mean this these are the kind of comments and the kind of things that cnn is continuing to put up with unbelievable how bad and how stupid that is thanks don lemon all right, time to make the call and uh, get a hold of Kevin Roberts, uh, the Heritage Foundation, one of, I think, the largest think tank of its kind uh, in the nation, one of the most important think tanks out there. Um, the University of Pennsylvania goes through and ranks them and had Heritage, you know, three years in a row. Uh, we have a number of organizations that I think are very worthy in Washington, D.C., that can do a lot of good work, a lot of good thinking, a lot of good um, oversight type of work, but, uh, heritage is somewhat unique. So, uh, they have a fairly new, he's not brand spanking new, but a fairly new president there. So let's, uh, dial up, uh, Kevin Roberts from the heritage foundation. Hello, Jason. Hey, Kevin, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. I really do appreciate it. 
man, it is a pleasure to be with you. I, I love everything you do and look forward to the conversation. Well, I, you know, you have taken the, the realm there. You've taken the, taken the leadership role there at the Heritage Foundation. I mean, it's one of the biggest, most important, um, I think it's the biggest, most important think tank there is. Now, full disclosure, I have a working relationship with the Heritage Foundation, but nonetheless, I wouldn't, uh, you know, be involved and engaged there if I didn't think the world of it. Well, thanks for that. You know, I, I was minding my business in Texas, running the Texas Public Policy Foundation a year or a half ago when Heritage called and they said, Kevin, we're looking for a president. Would you be interested in talking to us? And even though, Jason, I was really happy in Texas. My wife and I have four kids. Texas is our adopted home because it's Heritage, to your point. I said, of course, I'll talk to you. And it still is, you know, recently we've celebrated the exact date of our 50th birthday. It still is surreal for me to walk into the building each day and know that I have the privilege of leading this this great, venerable institution that is also very much focused on the future. It's why we have this working relationship with you and so many people ultimately to sum up here. Even though there's a lot that we're engaged in and trying to fix a lot of problems, we do so with smiles on our faces as cheerful warriors, as I like to say. And that's always been the case with Heritage. So it's a lot of fun to be there. Well, look, every, every time there's a change in leadership, no matter the organization, I think you need a, an infusion of new energy, new excitement, new ideas. Um, and and you've certainly... You certainly brought that because, I mean, you just walk into the room with you and, and uh, things light up because you're just like, all right, hey, we're ready to go. Let's go. And um, that is infectious. And, um, you know, I saw you doing that. I, I visited the, the one time with the Texas policy um, group that you were heading up down there. And there were so many people involved and engaged. And, you know, this is really important stuff. Like, I'm a policy geek. I, I just... At the end of the day, we we argue, we quibble, we we tweet, we you know put something out on you know social media. But what really matters at the end of the day is the policy that ends up you know affecting real people's lives. And I, I, I sometimes in the shuffle of the sensational that gets lost in the weeds. It really does. And and I'm often asked, you know, Kevin, what what is it that causes you to be so energetic, to be so optimistic in spite of all of the problems. And it's because given how I was raised, you know, working class family on the Gulf Coast, I see policy, even as a as a policy geek myself, through the lens of the everyday American. And, and I think Heritage over its 50 years has been at its best when it does that. As you know, Jason, when you were a member of Congress, you knew this, you know this now. Heritage is just a block away from the Capitol. We have tremendous access to those offices. But what makes us really effective when we're at our best is when we go in, not just talking about the policy solutions with a, you know, academic depth to them, but I would say equally important to that, to the, the very heart of, of your point, is that we're doing so representing the everyday American. We like to call ourselves the outpost for the everyday American in the nation's capital. That's a real privilege, but it's also a real challenge for those of us who are working inside the city, because as you know better than anybody, all the incentives in Washington are just to represent the establishment, represent the swamp, if you will. And we're at our best when we're representing people out in flyover country. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it is this ecosystem unto itself. There's a reason why they 
they ref- there's so many different ways to refer to Washington D.C. and inside the Beltway and um, the bubble that is Washington D.C. and you get caught up in it, that Potomac fever, and it's it's about money, it's about power, it's about spending more money and having more power as opposed to freedom and liberty and getting government off the backs of ordinary people and and. It's interesting to have, we need more organizations, quite frankly, but Heritage, when you when you actually want to dive deep into policy and think through and say, all right, um, you know, how should I think about this? There are such good researchers out there at, you know, that provide all these materials, not just for members of Congress, which we tapped into regularly, but the general public can go out and see this stuff and really dive deeper into an issue. That's exactly right. In, in fact, the, the, really the best part of my job, although I enjoy meeting with, uh, with members of the House and members of the Senate and their staffs, is to go out and be with regular people. Uh, I keep a really energetic schedule of, of speaking engagements, listening engagements, if you will. And, and the point is they invariably ask me, well, Kevin, how can I learn more? Well, you, you know, you go to our website, heritage.org, and, and we try to write these policy papers that strike a balance between the depth that's necessary for the policymakers to to see the detail they need while also being accessible to the general public. And by saying accessible, I'm not saying the general public is dumb, quite the opposite. It's just the general public is going about their lives in their own areas of expertise, and, and they don't necessarily need to have the vocabulary that a member of Congress does. And what Heritage does is try to bridge that gap. And, and so to the extent that millions of everyday Americans can look at our policy solutions and and then go to their members, whether they be members of Congress or state legislators and say, look at this heritage briefing, this two pager on this issue. Let's let's help me help you figure this out so that we can take America back and have more self-governance, more common sense policy. That's really what we're trying to do in all of our research. It makes immense sense. And and if you have a conservative bent, you think, you know, how should I think through this issue? I think it's informative that way. Okay, but Kevin, we 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 like to dive a little deeper. The guests that come and join us, um, you know, we how you how how did you get from here to there? How did you get to the point where you were a conservative? I grew up, I wasn't necessarily that conservative, but the, you know, I like to joke that once I learned to read and write then and get a check and get married, then I, I ended up being very conservative. So talk walk us back here. Let's go back to I was born in and then kind of walk us through your life and, and maybe some of the inflection points that that changed the trajectory of your life and, and got you to this mindset that you're you are a very conservative person. Well, I tell you, I, my as we record this, my, my mom's going to be visiting from Louisiana. And she tells the story that she was rocking me when I was a baby uh, in the summer of 1974, weeping when President Nixon announced his resignation, obviously because of mistakes he made. But she was weeping even though she was sitting there as a Democrat, because mm-hmm. almost everybody in Louisiana at the time was a Democrat. But almost everybody in my hometown of Lafayette, Louisiana, who was a registered Democrat, was very conservative. And so I was became the first Republican in my family. And the reason that I did is because of this huge political realignment that we saw in the country. Ronald Reagan really kind of personified that and led it. But, but for us in Louisiana, my family, extended family, even though I was the first registered Republican, 
I was not by any stretch of the imagination the first conservative. I grew up in, in Acadiana, Cajun country. People, you know, there's a 92% chance when you come out of the womb, you're going to be a Roman Catholic and be conservative. And so it was no surprise that as the country was going through this realignment in the late 80s and, and early 90s, and we saw the shift of, of or that really the epicenter of American conservative um, thinking move from the Northeast to the South, that I would be part of that. I was in college, president of the college Republicans. All of that to say that I decided I really wanted to study early American history and and became um, a history professor, college president, and, and obviously along the way fell in love with policy and politics, which led me to what I'm doing today as president of the Heritage Foundation. All right. So when you were growing up, brothers, sisters, were you, were you playing sports? I mean, what was life like growing up? Yeah, uh, middle of, of five kids, uh, you know, typical 1970s, 1980s situation of uh, divorced family. And, and the, that created some real financial difficulties for my mom as a single mom. And we, we moved around a lot as a result of that. And so, you know, today when I talk about asking the question, what time is it in America? which comes from this, this deterioration of institutions, including the nuclear family. That's something that I grew up in and that really informs my conservatism as an everyday guy. The reason that I am not at all bitter about that is because of faith and because of great mentors along the way, but also to your question from playing a lot of sports. Uh, I loved and loved football. Um, I, I was not as accomplished as you were, my friend, uh, but I, uh, I was a necessary part of the football team being the offensive center. So I was good at snapping the ball and I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, there's a little bit of a leadership role that you have as a center on a football yeah, team. Yeah. And, 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 uh, I, I learned to be vocal, but the real formative thing for me growing up was two activities. Uh, first boy scouts, I'm an Eagle scout. And, uh, that, that really taught me how to be a leader how to be more vocal, but also how to listen. And I did a lot of speech and debate in high school. And uh, that gave me a confidence in public speaking that, that I didn't have. I mean, this surprises a lot of people when I say it, but when I was 10, 12, 14 years old, I was very shy and very introverted. And all of those things uh, really helped me overcome that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how many people that become great speakers are so shy when they're small and young. And I hear that from actors. I hear that from people in politics. I hear that routinely. And it, it is amazing. And you mentioned the, the, the scouting program. I think, I think our country is going to look back on that scouting program and the Boy Scouts of America and say, you know, with the demise of that, the retraction of that, um, we lost a lot. And, and two things come to mind. One is uh, our own son uh, got his Eagle Scout and, and just so proud of what him and quite frankly, his mom did in order to help get that because there's so many skills and, and um, you know, our son went out and served a mission for our church and it happened to be in Ghana. And he wrote back to us about, I don't know, three, four weeks into it. And he was out in rural Ghana and he said, I got to tell you, I have used every skill, every badge I ever earned in Eagle Scouts, I have actually used here on my mission just to survive and get through day to day. And the second part of that is I remember talking to Trey Gowdy, you know, former member of Congress, friend of ours, part of the Fox family. Sure. And and, uh, and it was interesting. We were talking about his life as a prosecutor, 20 plus years at the local level, federal level, state level. I mean, kind of all levels. 
And he said, you know, upon reflection, I've never ever prosecuted or needed to prosecute somebody who was an Eagle Scout or was homeschooled. And I thought that was very interesting about how people who go through those those programs the, the right way end up being very good and productive citizens. That's fascinating. I, the, the, what a great comment from Trey. Uh, I, I would say on the point of, of scouting that some of the finest men I have ever known were the scout masters in the, in the two troops that, that I was in. I was in a troop in my hometown in Louisiana and we lived up here in Northern Virginia for two years and the same thing with those guys. And uh, I remain lifelong friends uh, with, with those scout masters and with their sons. And they're just some of, some of our, my best friends. And then on the point of homeschooling, it's interesting too, you know, I'm a homeschool dad. Uh, of course, my wife deserves almost all the credit for that. We're in year 10 of homeschooling and still have, have three kids at home. And I can see that. I mean, our, obviously our kids are imperfect like, like any humans, but there's a certain, to your point, there's a certain um, stability. There's a certain order that comes from that. And it, I, I relish now when people ask me, well, how is it that you, that you homeschool? The underlying question is, you know, are your kids normal? <laughs> right, right, right. And I, yeah. And so, and so Trey Gowdy's comments, I think, answer that question really well. No, I, I think that's true. And, and I look at, you know, maybe homeschooling 30 years ago is a bit different than it is today. I mean, the resources, the tools, um, the experiences that are then shared and passed along, I, I think it's very viable. And I, I do still, still think one of the seminal issues of our day is about schooling and school choice and the ability for a parent and a family to find the best solution for their own child. Because you, the first few months of life, it's pretty evident that each child has their own personality and their own direction. I mean, that's the miracle of life. That is exactly right. And, and as I tell people um, who are contemplating homeschooling, it's not for everyone, but if it is for you, then it will, it will probably feel like a calling. I mean, that, that's what my wife would say. Yeah. But I'll also say this, uh, Jason, that you may not know this about me, but along the way, I, I opened the K-12 school, John Paul the Great Academy in Louisiana. And it was uh, start from scratch, K through 12. I mean, only the success of that came only from the Holy Spirit. Um, and the school's now flourishing in year 17. But in the first year, we attracted a lot of homeschoolers. And moms would come in and they would say, we just don't know. We've been homeschooling for a while. We're thinking about this private school. We don't know about the public schools. And I would always say, look, I believe in an all of the above approach. We need every kind of school, charter schools, other yeah. kinds of public schools, private schools, homeschooling. We need all of them to succeed because ultimately, if we have all of those options as parents for our kids, then our kids will be better off and therefore the American Republic will be better off. Amen to that. No, it's true. So so you're going through, you're playing some football, you go to high school, and then you've got some choices for college. And look, you looking at your bio, you've done some you've done some schooling along the way. <laughs> yeah, that's what my grandfather who is an old Cajun guy used to tell me is my, my biggest life mentor and hero. Um, he only had a seventh or eighth grade education and served in World War II as a Marine. He said, boy, you got a lot of book learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, for a while there, you were sort of a professional student, weren't you? I mean, that's what, what, it, that's what my wife called me. Yeah, we were first married and uh, we got married and, and on a Saturday morning and literally the next Monday, I started graduate school at Virginia Tech. And for the next several years, 
her parents would call and say, well, how's Kevin doing? And, and, and my wife, Michelle said, he still has his nose in a book. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's paying off now. Uh, that, but what, what was it? I mean, what attracted you? You did, got a degree in history, right? I, I can't even remember right. all the degrees you got, but what attracted you that direction? I mean, were you that kind of nerdy guy when you were six years old and you were just fascinated by history or what was, what kind of drove or informed that or created that passion and, and decided, Hey, I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to love it. Jason, from my, my earliest memories from reading, uh, you know, whatever grade that was, I gravitated to history and biographies. And I remember going in, I was in you know, second grade or first grade, whenever this was, you first go into the library and at, at my public school, Broadmoor Elementary in Lafayette, Louisiana. And I went straight to a biography of Abraham Lincoln. And then over the subsequent months, I read all of the, the age appropriate biographies of Lincoln. And therefore, as long as I can remember, my biggest passion has been American history, especially early American history. Hmm. And so when I, when I was in high school, I was thinking about going to law school, like so many people who also love politics do. And I remember trying to decide, well, what, what will I major in? And actually, one of my assistant scout masters, who is a liberal arts guy, said, well, you love history, major in history. If, in fact, you want to go to law school, it, it's a great foundation. Yeah. And so I pursued that. And then when I became a junior in college, I, uh, I became convinced that pursuing the law, as, as noble as that can be, wasn't something that I wanted to do. And my, my mentor, history professor, who's still at that school, I still, he's now a donor to heritage, believe it or not, a conservative history professor. He said that, um, Kevin, just go all the way through. He said, just become a history professor. And that's what I did. And, and obviously also developed a love for leadership and politics and policy. I always sort of knew that I might not stay in the classroom forever, but, uh, following, this is the lesson, Jason, following my passion, was something that has served me extraordinarily well. And I think that's true for any young person, whatever the passion may be in terms of uh, passion being a particular academic discipline. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Kevin Roberts right after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what the specific quote was, but somebody's really smart said something like that, right? Where they said, um, follow your passion, then it's not a job, it's it's your life. And, and you just, it's so much more satisfying and the kind of thing where you go off and you 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 dive into it and you look up and you have no idea how much time went by because you're enjoying it as opposed to watching the clock every 10 minutes and and uh saying oh gosh i can't wait you know to just get through this there's a difference between those two things and so you go do a bunch of schooling then you start a school i mean how, how does that conversation go down hey honey um i got a i got an idea yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you, man, I, I was uh, doing really well as a young history professor at a, a public university in the Southwest. And I realized I, I really wanted to get into school leadership and that I might be willing to do that at the high school level rather than at the university level. And so I took this job as a, a history teacher at a, a really elite college prep school in Alabama. And it was during that year to swerve just a moment into into our faith, which is important, that 
my wife and I became, you know, real serious about our faith. And it's, it's the fruit that came from that. We're sitting in church one day and our finance minister, finance chairman guy said, uh, you know, you need to tithe $5 more. Well, we get in our van to go home. We had two kids at the time. And of course, my wife being very reasonable and prudent said, yeah, we can tithe $5 more. And I said, well, Michelle, I, I heard a different message because <laughs> this is about the, this is about the parable of the talents. And I, what I heard was, yes, we need to tithe more, um, but we also need to tithe more from our talents. And here I am at a very fine school, but one that's secular. And we're growing in our faith and serious about American history and serious about being conservatives. And that led us to uh, reconnect with one of my great high school friends who's now a Catholic priest. And Jason, a year later, uh, we, we started a school totally from scratch with no money that was K through 12 in the first year. And we, we almost had to close so many times because of the hubris we had that I had that, oh, we're going to make this work, right? And, and the school is now not only debt-free and flourishing and the most beautiful property in my hometown, uh, but it's been so successful in spite of its founder that it's, it's now franchising. There, there are going to be oh, schools uh, modeled on that curriculum from California to Idaho uh, to across the country. Okay, so, but at some point you make a leap from there. What was, tell us about that transition and where you went and why you did it. Well, this is a theme, you know, I was just minding my business uh, on the Gulf Coast and Wyoming Catholic College had been founded several years prior and their first president, a Catholic priest was retiring. They were doing a national search. And as it turns out, they were looking for someone who had an academic background, but knew something about building, expanding institutions. You know, I'm an academic, but I'm, I'm really someone who focuses on the external on marketing and, and all of that. And uh, they, they wanted someone who had sort of a network into Catholic high schools so that we could recruit. And so I ended up becoming the second president of Wyoming Catholic College. And that's really important. In fact, it's the most important aspect of how I made the transition into politics and policy. Because while there, one facet of the Obamacare law, the contraceptive mandate, was not something that I, as president of a faithful Catholic college, could sign. And so we, we sued them along with Little Sisters of the Poor. And we won. We beat the Obama administration. And then that was so much fun, you know, spiking the football <laughs> right, in, their, right. in, their, in their faces, um, that, <laughs> that uh, we, we then became eligible for federal student loans and grants. And I decided, like Hillsdale, like Grove City, like Christendom College in Virginia, we weren't going to do it. And uh, the college is now 10 years into that decision. It does not accept federal student loans and grants. The point is, that was so much fun. And I realized I liked that so much that I was going to step out of that role and, uh, and take the job in Texas and, and do politics and policy for the rest of my life. And I really thought we would be in Texas forever. Uh, but obviously, Heritage had some other plans. And that's, you know, moving the family around is, is kind of tough. But let's go back to this idea not to take the federal funds. What? Because I think this is a really interesting point and in, in a, a difficult, difficult decision, right? Oh, it's huge. Look, we were to, to paint the picture. The college was only seven years old. Uh, we were in a wonderful town, Lander, Wyoming. Um, most people listening to this, however, would think that it's the middle of nowhere. You've, you've got a sense of Lander because of where you're from, right. um, but a great, great town, great people. The point is uh, we had everything to lose 
by standing up for what we thought was right. We were leaving a million dollars on the table each year out of by foregoing federal support out of a budget for the college of just four or five million dollars. So, I mean, huge. Wow. Our faculty members knew that rejecting loans and grants from the government meant that, that, you know, the pace of their salary growth would slow. It meant that I, with a young family of four, you know, in the middle of nowhere, would have to increase my fundraising travel. And yet, you know, I would just say the Holy Spirit guided us. And, um, and, and, and it ended up being that it wasn't the federal government that gave us so much friction about that. It was our creditors. Uh, they, they thought that we would no longer be a going concern right. financially without the money. And I wouldn't say that they were wrong as much as what they discounted was the power of perseverance rooted ultimately in humility. Uh, we, you know, we, we were willing to stand up for what was right, even if that meant we had to work harder. And even if that meant that it increased the chances of failure, I'm very happy to report after my departure from, from Wyoming in, in order to go to the, the Texas group that the board multiple times unanimously has reaffirmed that decision and the college is now flourishing. You know, and that's a good, solid example. And, and um, I think I told this story last week on this podcast um, as Trey Gowdy and I were chatting um, about the what Justice Scalia uh, said to us. You know, the late Justice Scalia, Trey Gowdy and I and a number of other members, um, Peter Roscoe, a congressman from Illinois, had arranged this dinner. And it was so nice to sit down and break bread and then have a have a discussion with the one of the greatest Supreme Court justices there have been. And so it got turned to be, uh, it was my turn to ask a question. And my question was about no child left behind. I was trying to get the state of Utah to get out from under the the federal mandates of no child left behind. And and um, it was interesting as, as we did that, he, he had a very simple answer. He said, stop taking the federal money and you don't have to live by the federal mandates. He said, guys like me are going to, tell you that if you take the federal money you're gonna to have to play by the federal rules and and i think that's one of the big challenges for the states is that they take all this money whether it be for highways and roads and bridges and infrastructure well guess what if you if you take the federal money then you got to pay davis bacon wages you've got to do the federal environmental impact studies you got to do all these things that cost a lot of money slow down your project and do things differently than you would otherwise. And and the temptation from the federal government is to, hey, let's just take everything we can get. But it comes with all of these strings. And that's why these bureaucracies, these puppeteers, if you will, get to dictate how you do things. And it's not healthy and it's not it's not wise. It's very short-sighted. Oh, let's just grab the money. Now, I wish you could tie it to well, I wish we didn't have to pay that much in taxes because if our taxes are going to this and I'm not taking that money, I don't want to have to pay the taxes. But boy, this is a big discussion I think this country has to have. We, we do. And, and not surprisingly, you, you encapsulated all that so well. The, the, this, to me, is the biggest policy question facing the country. That is, the extent, the influence of the federal government, but namely federal money into the states and as you know also into the localities and and i mean that's that's difficult enough if you're a state legislator in utah or texas or wherever 
trying to to uh, make sure you're you're making a, a responsible budget and, and trying to do that with as little federal money as possible. But it's even worse. I mean, the influence is even worse when it comes to private institutions, namely colleges. And so, I, I'm I'm gratified to say that I get calls routinely from presidents and board members of other private colleges, most of them colleges of faith, asking if I can I can help them out as they try to extricate themselves from federal money. But to your point, Jason, the so the, the good news is there's a trend there. The bad news is not a single one of them has done it yet. So we, we have not added to the ranks of the colleges, just to use that industry as an example, that are rejecting federal student loans and grants because they are so dependent on that revenue. And until and unless conservatively minded people and conservatively oriented institutions develop the courage to say, this is what we're going to do and we're going to chart our own path, then it's going to be remain very difficult to expect our elected officials to have that courage, right? This is a, this is a dilemma that the Tocqueville posed. He said, you know, you, you, you think your elected officials lack courage? Look in the mirror. They reflect us. That's why I'm fascinated by your decision there in Wyoming, because when you're talking, it's my rough calculation, 25, 30% of your budget, 20% of your budget, whatever it is, it was a huge amount, right? And the temptation is, oh, let's just grab the money. Um, but it creates so many other problems. I, 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 I'm just proud that somebody did that and then made a great success out of it. So before I get to some more personal questions, um, let, let's wrap up the full circle. So you're in Texas, you go to the Heritage Foundation. One of the projects I'm really excited about is the oversight project. Um, and the idea that, um, you know, I, I was so excited when I got elected to Congress. I had four principles, fiscal discipline, limited government, accountability, and a strong national defense. And I thought, oh, if we do all those four, adhere to the Constitution, that's going to be the prism by which I, I, I look at, you know, the decision-making process as to where I should spend my time. But the accountability part of it, I was really struggling with. Like, how is this done? And it really took some research to go figure out because we talk about accountability, but you know, they don't give members of Congress um, handcuffs. <laughs> um, sometimes I wish they did, but the legislative branch doesn't get handcuffs, but they can illuminate the problems and challenges. And again, we talked about this on my, my podcast with Trey Gowdy, but it's one of the great challenges out there. But not only do we can't just rely on a committee that has 60 staff to do it, it's going to be a more full-throated um, uh, approach. When you have two plus, what is it, 2.2 million federal employees, we like to say on this show, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And there's such a waste and fraud and abuse of the system. It takes everybody. So I'm glad that Heritage is moving forward with this oversight project as well. Thanks for that compliment. Thanks for, for helping us. And in fact, I, as I sit here, this had occurred to me, even though I've seen you a few times in person in the last several months, that you know, you mentioned you quickly uh, a little while ago in our conversation, several years ago, you spoke at an event in Texas, the first time you and I met. And as, as you and I were chatting before your talk, and then during your talk, I learned something. I mean, keep in mind, as, as we've been discussing, I made this transition from the academic world into policy. And so I'm probably a little more of a novice now, but uh, I, don't, I don't have your understanding of that. And, and so I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, the conservative movement is not prepared for this. We've got great you know, former members of Congress like Chaffetz who gets it. 
people like Jim Jordan who get it, you know, people who are on the on the oversight committee in the House now. But therefore, fast forward several years to my being at Heritage and I'm telling my colleagues, guys, we have we have to be on offense. We have I think we're going to prevail. I think the conservative movement will prevail. I think we're going to save the republic, but only if we're on offense. And one of our mutual friends, Mike Howell, a heritage colleague, he heard in that a message that developed into the oversight project at, at Heritage. And the design of that or the purpose of that, rather, is to give the intellectual legal ammunition to our friends in Congress, especially on the oversight committee, to take your metaphor of handcuffs, put handcuffs on the administrative state. And hopefully by 2025, when we have a conservative president, we can really accelerate the pace. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Kevin Roberts right after this. Yeah, I I think there have been some valiant efforts, uh, but they need to be sustained. They need to be um, from top to bottom. Um, They need to be fighting on every level because you know the so-called liberal democratic machine oh my goodness they they do so many things to put um people in power and people in place and make decisions and push forward their policy agenda that i mean that's what they that's what they want to do that's what they want to pursue but there needs to be a balance here there needs to be an approach because i do believe this is a center right country and that it is very conservative by its very nature and i and i think these younger generation is much more conservative than than people give it credit for and but it takes uh talking through the issues because there may be a reflection you know a reflexive uh response that says oh i don't like republicans you know and but but then when you start talking about individual issues they get people light up and they say well yeah that's what i'm freedom liberty the self, you know, self-direction. Yeah, that's, I actually believe in that. Young people do believe in that. They just don't know that they're more conservative in their approach than, than what they've been told. It's, it's so true. And, and, and now we, we, just in the last couple of weeks, we have some, some data that, that suggests that, you know, some of these, these longitudinal studies about um, the evolution of thought among each generation of Americans. And, and it, the data bears out what you just said about younger Americans being more conservative than we might think they are, at least how the media portrays them. And, and I think the key to your point is they, they have a distrust in institutions, which is a, a real tragedy. I mean, they're right. Americans 30 and younger, the first generation who a minority of whom have a trust in institutions. And so the conservative project, remember, isn't just what's going on in politics and elections, but upstream from that is revitalizing institutions, schools, families, you know, rotary clubs, and so on. And young people, especially after the experience of COVID, are they're longing for that, you know, what sociologists would call belonging, belonging right. to something, belonging to something local, belonging to the nation state, which we all used to believe, even left of center Americans. And so the point is there's an opportunity there for those of us who are in leadership positions in the conservative movement if we can do a good job of closing the sale yeah i think and you're right there are institutions that we have to have that should be worthy but they're out of balance i mean my my grandfather was a an fbi agent for for decades 
and I grew up revering the FBI. And now I'm to the point of, really, guys, come on, what what, what are you doing? And, and and just sheer disappointment, time and time and time again. No doubt, a number of them do the right thing for the right reason. But I'm I'm not at the point anymore where I say, well, it's just the upper echelon. It's just a handful of people. I know it. it it's something has seeped in there that's much deeper and much more troublesome and much more political in its nature rather than Lady Justice, you know, having that blindfold up. I, I just, and we can go down that rabbit hole and have hours of discussion about just that. But <laughs> I, I think most people would say, yes, we need a, we need a good quality, trustworthy, independent, you know, somebody that doesn't look at things through the political blinders to be engaged in in the law enforcement of this country and but that's not where we are today no i i I lament deeply as you do what's happened to the fbi you and i both have some mutual friends who are former agents and and we know that as as they have told us the it the the disease has seeped into the rank and file it's no longer just the upper echelon which has been a problem for a long time and so i i don't say this lightly and certainly with no disrespect to you know, heroic agents, former agents of the FBI, the only way to fix it is to end it and to recreate, to your point, a proper, independent, judicious, objective federal agency that that does what the FBI used to do. I, you know, What I have seen a little bit firsthand, not as much as you, is that it is irredeemable. It is that bad. And I that's the reason, Jason, that among the many agencies that Heritage is calling for the overhaul of, the FBI is at the top of the list. Sadly, that's where we are today because, again, some of the functionality that they do and they engage with, we need. But, we do. you know, and I... And again, I'm going to be careful here because I got to transition to the next part of our, our topic here, but... You know, the question I keep asking with this whole interaction that they're having with all these social media companies is what law do you think was being broken other than infringing upon people's First Amendment rights? What law was being broken? How many charges did you bring? How many people were prosecuted? Like what what were they doing wrong? You know, what was the New York Post doing wrong by producing a story that you knew was true? And that's why these hearings and what Jim Jordan and James Comer and these other chairmen are doing are, are so vital. But all right, I, I want to transition. Otherwise, we're going to go for another two hours because you get a couple of policy geeks talking and, and we could have we could just keep running the gambit here. All right. I got some quick questions for Kevin. Kevin Roberts here from the Heritage Foundation. I, I just to illuminate a little bit more who you are and what you believe in, and just kind of a fun thing. So nothing to get too much trouble in, but I don't care how many history books you've read. <laughs> you're probably not prepared for all these questions. All right, you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Uh, first concert you attended? Uh, Alabama, the country music band. Yeah. Oh, sweet. I, I love Alabama. Great group and uh, certainly... I'm a little bit older, and yeah, they were right in the heart of things for so, so long. Um, what was your high school mascot? I guess you were doing homeschool what? stuff too, but high school. No, was I, I, was not, I was not homeschooled. Uh, my, my, uh, my high school mascot was the Lions, Lafayette High School. Because there were a lot of Lions in, in Louisiana, In right? the swamps, yeah, yes. completely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, I understand that. 
Uh, what was your very first job? Not the, you know, mom telling you, hey, Kevin, take out the garbage. I'm not talking that. Gar- I'm talking first where you got an actual paycheck from somebody else. Well, this tells you a little bit about me. It was uh, two things about me. First, you know that I'm a nerd. So at Walden Books, uh, now defunct uh, national retail bookstore, some of your audience will know. I remember the that. way I got that was I, I wanted the job, but I was uh, six months or a year younger than when they hired people. And so right. I wrote a letter to the CEO and lobbied <laughs> for myself to be hired. And I was hired. And uh, the manager of that local store was not very grateful, but I proved my worth. And it was a great first job. <laughs> that's that, that's good. Um, <laughs> what's your like superpower? And you got to take off the modest hat there, but like, what can you do that? Like, yeah, I'm actually really pretty good at that. I synthesize information really well. And so uh, consuming the information, understanding quickly what's actionable and putting together a plan, you know, over months or years, that's if I have a superpower, that's it. So some people struggle with that. They can, they can have that at their fingertips. You know, I, 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 when I was hired a number of people throughout the years, and I've always said that, it's it's much easier to tear something apart, you know, and but it's very difficult to build something back up and create something new and better and and more energetic and everything else, all the positives, right? And that is a skill set. So I can see why you've been so successful in so many different organizations that way. Um, do you have a pet growing up? I did. I had a wonderful dog, a cocker spaniel named Bo, uh, after General Beauregard, the great Louisiana native in the Civil War. And I'm a big dog guy. I, I raise bird dogs. I've got a now oh, German really? short hair, yeah. German short hair pointer, and uh, a Brittany. And um, one of my passions, if if not addictions, is bird hunting, and, and but especially raising those dogs. Oh, that would be fun. I would love to go out and do that with you at some point. Hint, well, let's hint, do it. Absolutely. Hint, hint. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Await the invitation. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to get this next question right, which is pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Yes. Oh, Kevin, seriously? <laughs> Absolutely. You yeah. know why? Because... I had never had pineapple on pizza. And, you know, my, my then girlfriend, now my wife of 26 years, we we're on our fourth or fifth date. And, you know, here's this is Southern hospitality, Jason. She said, you let's let's get pizza. Well, she orders Canadian bacon and pineapple on a pizza. And I'm thinking this girl is crazy. And and so I ate it politely, but then I kind of liked it. And so even if I disliked it, I've been successful in marriage because I always tell Michelle. Yeah. Okay. The so last you, two words. Yes, dear. <laughs> yes. Okay. I you you got the most legitimate exp, um, explanation I've ever heard, which is you just had starry eyed. You were just starry eyed for your wife, I, I, girlfriend at the totally. time. That's it, totally. So, so you have all these positive vibes flowing through this pizza. Okay. I, that that's your good excuse. I I buy that. <laughs> Thanks for accepting it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very judgmental on this one topic. <laughs> Everything else, I'm I'm pretty liberal, and you know, hey, you can be you, but pineapple on pizza that just doesn't work for me. So, <laughs> all right, uh, last question: uh, best advice you ever got? Follow your passion. We actually talked about that in in that one conversation yeah. where this assistant yeah. scoutmaster in my Boy Scout troop said, "You like history? Go do it." Well, you you can tell that it's it just radiates from you that energy and enthusiasm and passion for policy and uh it's why the heritage foundation been around for 50 years is going to continue to flourish under your leadership and it's uh thanks for letting me be involved and engaged in it but 
thanks for joining us on the podcast and um, wish you nothing but the the greatest success. Thanks, Kevin. Jason, this was a lot of fun. Thanks. It's It's been great to become a friend and look forward to working with you for many years. All right. I, I can't thank Kevin enough. Um, you can see his uh, energy is infectious and he's he's got, you know, he's rooted in policy and principle and, and that's what you want in a leader. And anyway, I appreciate him joining us on the podcast. Hope you can rate this podcast, please. We'd love to get the ratings. We need to have you you know, do that. That would be really helpful. Subscribe to it so you can get it every week. I would remind people that you can listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Uh, Fox produces a number of podcasts. You can go to foxnewspodcast.com to see other podcasts like it. But uh, again, rate it, review it. Uh, we'd appreciate it. And come back next week because we will have another dynamic guest. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This has been Jason in the House. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.